When the government spends on its people and its infrastructure, we create jobs. There was no stimulus. You know, this stimulus does not exist. It was smoke and mirrors, you know. Mm. For me, education and health should not be seen as social spending. There shouldn't be a budget constraint for ESCOM because the cost of this disaster is much more than the cost of fixing ESCOM. We don't have a debt problem, we have a GDP growth problem. The CISO and Wolf Welsh Experience Podcast. Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm extremely excited to be joined by one of our country's most incisive and progressive economic minds, Mr. Duma Kubule. Duma, thank you so much for joining us on SMWX. Thank you, Cesar. It's such an honor. I don't think I'll be as interesting as some of your other guests, you know, Professor Pakeng and <laughs> you know, some of the legendary episodes. Yeah. Well, in terms of fashion, I think you've already set the bar quite okay, high. So, you. yeah, you've actually outdone me with the shirt today, which is quite embarrassing. But, yeah, okay. but here we are. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And you're one of the most interesting economic thinkers in our country, in my view. And what's fascinating about your insights is you bring technical expertise, but you have a different view to the mainstream of South African neoliberal economic thought. What's your assessment before we dive into some of the questions we're going to tackle today, just of the South African economy as it stands and as it exists in the last five years of the Ramaphosa era? Well, <laughs> I, look, I, I look back from 1994. Sorry to, yeah. And um, sure. whichever way you slice the data, our country has been a miserable failure economically. So if you look at um, GDP per capita, which is an imperfect measure of average living standards, you know, it's increased by 20%, you know. And if you look at uh, China, it's more than 70%, 700%. If you look at India, more than 300%, um, Vietnam, 300%. Um, most developing countries have performed far better than us over, the, over this period. And when I look at this, so I've sort of sliced the economy into different phases post-1994. Mm. And the first one was the gear phase we were talking about earlier on from 1996 to 2003. So what you find is that the economic performance, you know, you can't, it roughly correlates with the level of government spending. So from 1996 to 1993, we had this gear program. Um, the propaganda of the government is that we had a public debt crisis, but I have sliced the data from every single angle. There was no public debt crisis in 1996. Mm -hmm. The debt to GDP ratio was 49.5%, which is um, far lower than we have now. Which is what, the 70, inflation 70 rate, something now? It's, it's almost 70%, yeah. And then the inflation rate was 7%. So there was no reason whatsoever, and I argue this on every platform, for us to have the gear policy. So the gear was a slash and burn macroeconomic policy with the government cut spending and, um, you know, for whatever reason, and then interest rates went through the roof. So briefly, um, government spending, consumption spending went up by about 2.6% a year. And but there was a public, the first public sector investment strike, where public investment went down by 25% between 1998 and 2001. And it only really went, went back to 1998 levels in 2004. Um, the outcome of, and then interest rates went through the roof to about 25%, you know, under Governor Christos. And, you know, I was 
I was in my first job at the time, mm. and I had a very good relationship with Christos. You know, people don't believe it that when I came back to South Africa, mm. you know, I was I wasn't really political. You know, although I had a political upbringing, you know, yeah. and um, yeah. but I was I didn't know people. Do you see what I'm saying? But I, mm. so I would go and talk to him. About, but anyway, so that's the issue. Right. So that's really interesting. Like. Yeah. How what was your first job and and how did my you, first job was yeah. in the media yeah so i okay. yeah so i was i was i was writing about the economics and many things of black economic empowerment as well yeah yes and um so i used to talk to christos regni but the point is interest rates went up to 25 percent because they were trying to control the currency mm. the net effect of all of that is that um unemployment went soaring from 4.6 million in 1996 to 8 million and um, it went from 33% to 40.6%. You know, that's in 1990, in, in the first quarter of 2003. So that's a gear period. Sure. Whichever you went, look at it, it was a disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now we had a period of growth, which um, I talk about a lot, and I argue sometimes with my progressive economist. Mm. You know, mm. I say at the end of the day, what happened between 2003 and 2008. So this is roughly the 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 Tabu era. Yeah, yeah the Mbeki era. To, yeah, yeah. to just towards the end of his his term. Yeah, until, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I met the pre president, Becky, towards the end of last year, and I said, mm. you know, I used to um, write about jobless growth, but yeah. then I looked at the data. Huh. Data. So, my issue, Cesar, is that yeah. I refuse in any public forum to ever talk about the official definition. So, I had mm. to go to Stats Essay. Stats Essay, I need a data set that only looks at the expanded definition, which mm -hmm. includes people who are discouraged or people who don't search for work for other reasons. Yeah. Sure, sure. So um, the late, fantastic lady, um, she did it for me, and the state of it took a week. You know, and, Interesting. Um, so, so, I got, so basically what happened is that three point, we created 3.1 million jobs. The economy grew by 4.5% a year, mm -hmm. and um, the unemployment rate went from 40.6 in the first quarter of 2003 to 28.7. Mm -hmm the fourth quarter of 2008. So the expanded unemployment The expanded rate. unemployment rate okay. came fast, but there was an anomaly in that data is that there was a large increase in the economic, not economically active. So the labor right. force was growing faster, I mean, much lower than it usually grows. And I mm. once asked Paddy Lehotla, you know, what could that have been the reason? Yeah. He said it was, maybe it's AIDS, we don't know, you know, mm. but mm. what I call it, it's an unexplained slow growth in the labor force, right. which is probably not just the AIDS deaths, it was something else, which I haven't, figured out you know yeah. um so but anyway so so we had a growth period yeah and what happened during that period is that government consumption spending increased by 4.8 percent a year and there's a public sector investment boom it increased by this is by general government and public corporations it increased by 13 percent a year between mm. 2001 and 2008 investment by public corporations is about i think it's about 18 percent so now you see when the government spends on its people and its infrastructure we create jobs and then I coined this term, which mm. I wrote about so many times, the last decade from 2009 to 2019. So you're the originator no, of, of no, the no, last no. decade they call, The politicians called it the nine wasted years. Mm. But I look at the data and I called mm. it the last decade. Right. So basically what's happened during the last decade pre-COVID yeah. is that... Um, so so yeah. roughly... What? 2009 to 2019. This sure, is sure. after the global financial yeah, crisis. Okay. So Roughly President Zuma's term. Yeah, and also into and a little bit of Ramaphosa's Ramaphosa, area. Yeah. So I don't look at the politics. No, sure. Uh, yeah, sure. yeah. I just look at the economics. Yeah. So from 2009 to 2009, basically there there was no growth in GDP per capita mm -hmm. uh, over that period. And what happened is that there was a slowdown in government consumption spending and investment spending. Financial crisis. No, well, the financial crisis was from. 
2009, our GDP went down by 1.5%, and there was a slow recovery. Mm. You know, when I talk to people who want to justify Uzuma, mm. they say, no, the first term of Zuma was fine, mm. you know, like my friends in the Communist Party. Yeah. And they say the first term was fine under Zuma. He went rogue in the second mm. term. I've mm. heard Gwede Mantashe say that as well. Yeah, I've heard But that. There, was, there was a recovery. We created, sure. I think, about 2 million jobs after the global financial crisis. Mm. The economy grew by 3% a year yeah. from 2010 to 2013. Wow. Little yeah. did we know those were, those were good days in comparison to where we are now. Well, yeah, yeah. Until 2015, we created about 2 million jobs. Mm. And then the economy collapsed. Mm. Um, so there are two phases, 10, 2010 to 2003. Sure. Then there's a collapse from 2015. Yeah where there's a massive, you know, basically GDP per capita goes down and, um, 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 yeah, and basic collapse, unemployment goes up and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. now if you look at now where we are, sure. we are now um, 15 years of no growth in GDP per capita. Um, we're in mm. the deepest crisis currently, yeah. bar the 2020 COVID shock. So we've had a mm. COVID shock, then we've had an ESCOM shock. Mm. Um, I don't know. And then which you asked me about the Ramaphosa presidency. Yeah. You know, I worked in the president's office in a previous life, you know, mm. and, you know, I worked the president, my Ramaphosa, yes, has, yes. And, and I mean, for, for our viewers, just to yeah. let them know who we're dealing with, the president Ramaphosa. has asked your advice on economic questions. You've no, spoken no, no, to, I, he, the president was the, was the chairman of the Black Economic Empowerment Commission. And in those days, as I said initially, um, black economic empowerment was my thing. Sure. I, I was the go-to person for that, you know. So I worked for the Black Economic Empowerment Commission for two years, and um, we started off in the president's office, you know, with my yeah. colleague Andy Brown. Sure. And I can't remember for the life of me why we left his office mm. to work at her apartment in Morningside, but that's mm. another story. Mm. But the point is, um, yeah, so how did you get to this? Yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about the different oh, the, areas. Oh, yeah, the, the area, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so, um, so whichever way you look at it, you know, mm -hmm. this Ramaphosa presidency has been a disaster, you know. Um, the, you know, I, so I don't know how to explain it because there was such hope at yeah. the beginning, you know, yeah. and um, yeah, there was such hope, there was such goodwill, the new dawn. I, I obviously knew because I'm, I study economics that the new dawn was a non-starter from the beginning because I just look at the economics and everything I've subsequently said has been proven correct, yeah. you know? And um, so um, it was just, it has just been a huge disaster and um, everything I've said would happen has happened. And um, yeah. there's been a COVID shock, there's been an ESCOM shock, there's so many shocks all at once. So we're now sitting with 11.9 million unemployed people, unemployment rate of 42.5%, the most unequal country in the world, Half of the population lives in poverty, below the, up, the upper poverty line. Mm -hmm. And we have to change gear. And what I don't understand is, you know, if something is not working, the government talks about structural reforms. This structural reform started about 2012, 2013 under the Zuma presidency. All that's happened under this administration is that they've gone into, you know, like maybe the Zuma was pretending to do them. And then um, yeah. this guy is, really trying to implement them, you know, if um, under this administration, but th there's no difference from an economic point of view. Maybe it's the intensity of the reforms. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what it is, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, so they talk yeah. about structural reforms. What I don't understand is that these structural reforms have never delivered. And from time to time, I add up these structural reforms what do they add to? They're trivial. They make no difference to the bottom line of our country. Well, well what do you think those structural reforms 
actually are and have been. So what? what so I've what got a nice that, definition yeah. of structural reforms, which I can't remember right now. Which yeah. I, it's, a, it's it's about the withdrawal of the state from you know um, energy, water, transport, and telecommunications, and the removal of all the impediments towards the free functioning of the market system. Mm. That's basically what structural reform is. So now if you add all the things that are planned in energy, the IPPs, in, um, in transport, it's like the rail um, concessions that you're seeing at Transnet, sure. and uh, the, the port concessions, and then you add what's happening, and then telecoms, the, the, the one, what's it called? The, the auctions that we had mm. for, for, mm. for, for 5G, things, Spectrum, yeah. that's the word I'm looking for. Mm. And then in water, some weird things are going on. So if you add them all up, yeah. none of them will grow the economy in any significant way. So when mm. I started my column in Business Day, it was about the time six months into this presidency, mm. and I've been on it every single yeah. column, explaining that this thing is doomed. Um, it will never work. It's a non-starter from day one. It's, 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 and what I find really interesting now is that many of the people who are supporting, you know, the mainstream journalists, mm, mm. they are now coming to the same conclusion. As I, I saw a cover story in the Financial Mail mm. about how these investment summits are just smoke and oh, mirrors. Let's yeah. not get I've been writing that oh, yeah. for years, you know, that these yeah, investment yeah. summits, it's just like a, it's a PR exercise and so forth. Yeah, yeah. you did some interesting mm. Um, mm. work looking at the investment summits and then going back to companies' annual reports yes, and yes, realizing yes, yes. that a lot of the commitments were had already been had made. Already you, know, been made. I, you know, I went to the first investment <laughs> conference um, and to be an Anglo-American announced a massive um, investment of the Venetia mine. Mm. And then I looked at that, you know, in my previous life, you know, Caesar, I was an expert on mining. Mm. I was into nationalization of the, of the mines. Um, and I actually went to meet the, one time, the, the, the youth league of the mm. ANC at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, this guy is talking our language, you know, you know the people are now in the EFF. Sure. This guy's talking our language. Let's call him, you know. Mm. And I went to address all of them yeah. at their conference. And um, I was invited. This is another life. But yeah. Um, yeah. so anyway, just on a lighter note. So I was invited to Free State to an extended NEC of the ANC mm. Alliance, you know. And the Youth League people invited me. Yeah. So they said, um, so I went and told my staff about why the mines must be taken over by sure. state, you know, and you know, half, I had a whole, it's all costed, not populist, you know? Yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was all costed. And then I met the guy about a year later in Melrose Arch who had invited me. Mm. And I said, what happened yeah. Yeah, to that meeting? Yeah. He says, Comrade Dumas, they used your arguments to argue against nationalization. But we, we didn't understand it properly, so we couldn't say anything. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, so I'm just saying, so, um, so these structural reforms, what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. is that um, they were non-starter from the beginning. And then the government austerity has started a long time ago, and it doesn't deliver. And then the third one is um, the Reserve Bank, you know, the interest rate yeah. increases. You know. we're going to yeah. get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can I just ask you on that? The, the Ramaphosa administration would say, what about the social spending that's been done? Even when revenues were falling, it seemed that social spending was going up in COVID on these SRP okay, grants. Okay, 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 okay. Is that, is that not know, a no, defense? No, 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 no. You, anyone who's in business day, I went to town on this. Oh, sorry, back on the 
quickly. I was talking about the investment summits, yeah, sure. about the mines. So Anglo-American made a huge commitment of, I think, mm. 20 billion rands. Mm. And I went and looked at the annual report. This mm. referred to a mine at Venetia that had already been built. Mm. So that was the smoke and mirrors I was talking about, wow. you know. So all these, these people wanted to be seen with Minister Patel and mm. the president and share stage. Yeah. None of them were real investments that wouldn't have happened anyway. So what they did is just to package existing investments that are in their annual reports and say these are new investments. Sure. That's basically what happened. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So you were asking. Yeah, yeah the, the basic response to your position has always been, well, look, it's not really a fully austere budget because there's so much social spending. No, no, and no. Back to fact, 500 billion. Okay. In COVID. Yeah, the, I did a lot of paper. Okay, so yeah. let's talk about COVID. So yeah. um, at the beginning of COVID, I met Sipo Mtati, the head of Oxford. I said, you know, what we need, Sipo, is a um, sort of a, sort of a, something that the progressives movement will agree to across society and you know nothing happened of that discussion you know she was the head of co but by some i don't know i'm not you know i was born in a religious family but i'm not um <laughs> very um religious mm -hmm. um, but um what happened is that um all of that happened and i through different assignments i've got through COVID. yeah um, i'm at the stage now where i'm I can say exactly what needs to happen through sure. this country. Yeah. So, um, you know, all, yes, yeah, yeah. So what, what was the question again? Yeah. The, the, oh, the 500 yeah. billion stimulus. Yeah. So this is something that I wrote about extensively. Mm -hmm. There was no stimulus, you know, this stimulus does not exist. It was smoke and mirrors, you know. Um, I don't even know where to start, you know. But what about the COVID grants? Because that seemed like yeah, the, the it was meager. So basically, they were yeah. taking money from somewhere else and putting it to somewhere else. Yeah. So the right. net increase in government spending was 27 billion rands. Huh. Um, that was um, wow. 27 billion rands in the worst crisis in a century. Huh. And the 27 billion rand increase in government spending, that is what happens under normal times, sure. you know, when the government meets its spending targets, sure. you know. And then there was the... The failed loan guarantee scheme, which was about um, 18 billion rands. And then the biggest response was the TERS um, from the Unemployment Insurance Fund surplus, which was 60 billion rands, which was given to 5.4 million people who were temporarily unemployed. Mm. So basically, the, the, the stimulus was about 100 billion rands. Hmm. Um, it was a far... And, the government's direct contribution, I think, was about 0.6% of GDP. Yeah. The average for most countries was about 10% direct government contribution. And the total contribution to the stimulus globally was 17% of GDP. Mm. So we did not have a... So yeah. if you look at this SRD grant, it was um, it's about 38 billion rands and um, at the most 35 or something yeah, billion rands. But it was taken from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. No, that's really fascinating. Yeah. I think so. I think we've basically surveyed mm -hmm. where we are as a country, the mm -hmm. crisis that we're in, and you know, I've always thought it would be a brave president should appoint you as their economic advisor. Um, we need to break free of the economic dogmas of the last, actually, three decades. In it's many three ways. decades, yeah, yeah, and I guess. We face this this challenge where, on the one hand, there are proposals for a more redistributive, just public spending economy, mm -hmm. but the weakness of those proposals is they often aren't costed, 
they don't give the public the confidence that if we were to take these steps, the economy wouldn't be in some kind of disastrous state. Then we've got the traditional economic model, which has got us nowhere. And between these two, it feels like there isn't enough public conversation about an alternative economic model mm. that we can nonetheless cost, that we can convince people is actually feasible mm -hmm. and has various stages to it. So mm. if we were sitting in, in a room trying to reconstruct the South African economy, there mm. were no political constraints. Mm. How would you go about refashioning this economy so that it was more just, more redistributive, but also that it wouldn't give people the fear that it would fall into uh, a debt spiral or, or you know, all of the f scaremongering that we hear about ambitious redistributive economies? Okay. Sister, to answer your question, it's a very good question. And, you know, I've looked yeah. into this in detail and I have yeah. to say, like, Hamida from Naledi, she gave me opportunity to, you know, work with Naledi on the costing of precisely mm. what you're talking about, you mm. know. And, um, you know, I even I remember going to the public sector wage talks between the government and the unions. Mm. It was a fascinating learning experience. But what, what I forgot to say about the second period when yeah. we were growing, yeah. when the and a household, I mean, a government budget doesn't operate like a household. Sure. What I said is that the government was spending like 5% a year, yeah. Yeah. consumption spending, investment was 13% a year. Guess what? The debt went down mm. to 28 percent mm. i forgot to mention that hmm. and then when the government starts not spending between 2009 in the last decade the debt goes up so the mm. debt is a function of the slow growth of the economy sure. when the so debt is measured as a percentage of gdp so when gdp grows so i've been saying we don't have a debt problem we have a gdp growth problem mm. if you focus i mean on the if you focus on the bottom part of the equation yeah the debt will take care of itself, you know, and that's what people don't get. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I've been very influenced uh, recent years. You know, I was the first person in my columns to talk about mm. modern monetary theory, you know, right. and people get scared. You know, I met a guy who was advisor to the, you know, minister of um, small business. Mm. And he was telling me, do I agree with everything you say, but that MMT stuff is yeah. weird, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's the holy cow. That's the holy cow, yeah. So, so modern monetary theory. So basically, uh, without going into the details, mm -hmm. yeah. But the, how can I put it? You know, a government that prints um, its own currency, a government that um, doesn't promise to convert its currency against something else, you know, that you can run off, for example, you know, fixed currencies, you know, like in Zim mm. that you have or in many countries, mm. um, fixed exchange rates and the country. So the, the, the certain rules of what considers a monetary sovereign country. And so basically such a country can spend, the central bank can spend the money. So you can't run, out, you don't borrow in foreign currency. That's the third one, sorry, you have to. Mm. So South Africa has a unique privilege amongst developing countries of having very little of its debt denominated in foreign currency. Mm. So our debt is 70% um, of GDP, um, roughly. There's no universe in which that is high by international standards, sure. especially after the COVID shock, you know. The rich country average is in excess of 100%. In many countries, it's about 120%, 130%. In Japan, it's in excess of 250%. So you yeah. can't tell me that a 70% debt to GDP ratio, we don't have a debt 
crisis currently. Then they say, no, Duma, but it's the cost of debt, you know? Mm. Then I say, the cost of debt um, is about 6% of the debt, you know? But, um, and the government bonds at the moment um, have spiked up, you know, to about 11%. But the central bank can participate, can buy bonds on the government, on the... So, so yeah. one plank of your so what economic saying, sorry, vision just, would yeah. be, it would be, we don't need to be so squeamish yeah. about the balance sheet. Yeah. We can, we can actually, if we invest right, we shouldn't be so worried about debt. Yes, 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 yes. That's basically what I'm saying. Because if you, if you focus on growing the economy, sure. everything will take. So what I'm saying is that if the central bank can finance economic development, that's the sure. first lesson. Sure. And um, the central bank can wipe away the ESCOM debt. The central bank can capitalize development finance institutions. The central bank can do so much more than what it does in terms of setting interest rates. So the central bank needs a wider mandate where it's focused on growth and GDP growth. Yeah. So that's okay. the first thing. Now, the second yeah. thing is that we talk about um, with my colleagues at the AIDC, Dick Forsland, about the extended public sector balance sheet. Right. We've got 2.5 billion rands of assets at the PIC. Yeah. Sure. We've got now that I think there's two components of the PIC. It is the government employees pension fund which accumulates a surplus of 50 billion rands a year. There is no reason for, the, nobody has ever given me a reason for them to accumulate a surplus of 50 billion rands a year. Mm. The unemployment insurance fund has got a surplus of 110 billion rand as we speak. Yeah. And this is after it spent 60 billion rand during COVID, you know? Mm. So, we've, so that, those are the two aspects of the PIC. So sure. what I'm saying is that we need to, um, restructure once off the public sector balance sheet, you sure, know, sure. the SA Inc. balance sheet. So I say, let's cut all these um, assets mm. in the PIC by half, from 2.5 to 1.2, and then release the rest into the economy. That will reduce public debt, and um, that will also, because the government owes about 800 billion rands and the public corporation to the PIC. Then we release cash into the economy to finance the stimulus. Sure. And even after releasing 1.2 trillion into the economy, the GEPF will still have a surplus of about 10 to 15 billion rands a year. So that is one thing. Number two, we've got foreign exchange reserves of 1.1 trillion the last time I looked. So 2.5 trillion at the PIC, 1.1 trillion foreign exchange reserves, that is about the benchmark is about three months. That's way in excess of this. So I'm saying, let's do half of those foreign exchange reserves. Let's release them into the economy. Number three, government has got cash of about 300 billion rands. So I've done all the numbers on in terms of the payment of these things and the costing mm. of everything. Mm. Mm. And there is no, there is no reason for. I mean, my dad, you know, yeah. he went to a school in um, in Cookhouse, you know, and when it was time to go to Hilltown. The father, the, the father said, no, I don't have money to pay for you to go to Hilltown. Mm. And then the story in the family is that, no, um, the mother who had already passed away said, no, the child must go to school. So um, he sold his cows, you know, and mm. this is when we still used to own the land, you know, <laughs> for it was taken away from yeah. us. Yeah. So he sold his, 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 and that is how my father went to university mm. and he went to Hilltown, mm. where we became good friends with people like Robert Sobukwe and so on. And then he went on to become, you know, a renowned, a, yeah, yeah, like a, a, a theological education who lectured in universities throughout the country. So, but he's the only one in the family on that side mm. who had tertiary education. So this is a pivotal moment for our country, as it was for the, the Buddha family at the time, mm. for my father, 
to make no we must restructure this balance sheet yeah and we can and nobody i've done the numbers and nobody can argue with me on this there's no reason for us to have such an overfunded um government employees pension funds in the world in the rich countries they're over they're partially funded or they're no funding so in the us the biggest social security system in the world there's a reserve to take care of the baby boomers so so that's what this way i say we can't say there is no money there is money and if the, you complain about the size of the the interest payments then the what happened during covid is that central banks throughout the world took over the bond markets they nationalized them and they dictated the cost of capital so our cost of capital currently um, 11% there's been a massive exit from south africa i think it was about 300 billion last year and 200 billion that's probably the largest in history and um bigger than covid april 2020 when 100 billion rand left the country mm. and the reserve bank stepped in and they bought shares on the bond market you know so the government can also influence the cost of its own borrowing you know yeah so yeah. Mm. so one key plank of this alternative economic vision would yeah. be a massive big push to coordinate all these various entities that have yes balance sheets that can be yes, coordinated yes, yes. into a massive spending drive 100% where yeah. we inject new cash into the economy and it's not like it's just coming out of thin air or we're you know borrowing the 60 from billion the world no Bank yeah yeah no 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 borrowing the 60 billion eh, for for covid i know some of it was you know i was talking to the eif during covid quite a lot you know mm -hmm. and we subsequently discovered that the you know some of the money was abused and given to the wrong people mm -hmm. but the point is the 60 billion rand came out of thin air it is the uif surplus and i think many years ago some economists started questioning why do we have the surplus and when covid starts the government couldn't answer why we have the surplus mm. and they started spending 60 billion rand out of thin air so mm. i'm saying why can't we do the same now yeah. yeah so back to your question is that we have the national development plan mm. it has a target of 5.4% growth a year until 2030 sure. to create 11 million jobs from 20 i think 20, 2010 to 2030 yeah. and to reduce unemployment to i think about 6% and then there's got subsidiary targets for public investment 10% of gdp public investment we are now at about 3.8% and the shortfall to meet that target is about 400 billion a year total investment target is 30% of gdp the shortfall to achieve that is about 1 trillion rand so when i look at what's going on nobody is responsible for achieving the rtp targets national treasury talks about debt the reserve bank talks about inflation so i'm saying let's flip the script let's make it their job to um growth employment um and um inflation at the central bank and the treasury their mandate is to grow us at 6% so in practical terms what it means is that the gdp growth target and this is what happened in all the asian countries sure. the gdp growth target for this year is less than 1% So the government must spend into the economy the difference between the one percent and the six percent. It's as simple as that, you know. And what happens in all these, you know, I visited China twice, you know, before the on study tours before the global financial crisis, mm. and that is what they do every year. They set a growth target um, during their two sessions, I think, at the beginning of the year, mm. and throughout the year they adjust the tools of macroeconomic policy. What are the state banks doing? What are the 
how much investment do we release into the economy, how much consumption, the focus now is on consumption mm. because it's too investment heavy. So you make those calibrations throughout the year. So that is what we should be doing instead of this futile game yeah. of trying to focus on inflation and debt, you know. And so that's the first thing that I believe that we should do is that we should have a mobilizing vision and plan mm. of this economy to double the GDP every decade and 6% minimum GDP growth over the per, yeah. over the next few years, yeah. The and then in, just, yeah. just in terms of that, you've answered an interesting question, which a lot of, I think, people, progressive-minded mm -hmm. um, voices haven't answered, which is where, where would the money come from? Yeah, yeah. And I think you've actually shown... And people say, no, it's printing. Well. I say, well, yeah. printing is one of the options, but, you know, and, mm. but as I've shown, there's so many other options. Sure. These, these recommendations do not depend on the central bank yeah. printing money. We yeah. can do it otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the remaining question would then be, where would you deploy? Let's, let's now assume our, we got that our capital. State, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so where do you think the appropriate investments would be if we were able to coordinate that pool of capital mm. to drive the kind of redistributive and just growth mm. that would take us forward? Because one may argue in the Mbeki era, maybe one of the mistakes that was made despite the spending was that the spending wasn't quite as ambitious or redistributive as it could have been. There was a lot of public sector, mm -hmm. small wage spending on... There was wasteful ESCOM spending as well. Yes. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. chance would be a fine thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we didn't spend on free education, for example. We didn't do a, a massive land reform program or, mm -hmm. or something like that. So do you have any ideas on what... Yes, yes, yes. I've, I've, I've yeah. looked into that in detail. And, you know, the problem is that people become investment fundamentalists. We all agree that investment has a very strong multiplier effect on the economy. Sure. But any stimulus balances consumption and investment, as you say. And one thing, you talked about free education. Mm -hmm. For me, education and health should not be seen as social spending. Ever since I left university all those years ago, hmm. I have been adamant this is not social spending. I disagree with this artificial separation between social and economic spending. Investment, as Professor Paikeng said yeah. in your show, yeah. is an investment in our future. Mm. The same in health, which is an investment in human yeah. capital, yeah. where people can become productive for much longer. Mm. So, so my plan, basically, the first element of it, I did a lot of work mm. with um, mm. Social Policy Initiative, Isabel Fry, on the basic income grant. So sure. to cut a long story short, I'm a big supporter of the basic income okay. grant. So it should be, we modeled um, the spending on 665 rands a month hmm. for the first, um, the lower poverty line. Yeah. I forget now, I've, I've done. And then the food poverty line, that's what it's called. And then the, I think it's about 800 rands or 800 at the next poverty line. Sure. And then 1,500 at the next poverty line. So we implement it over three years. Mm. It gives an immediate boost to the economy. And that's quite a It's a huge one, yeah, yeah. So, so, so my basic income grant, yeah. by the way, it's different from the others you've seen. Okay. First of all, it's unfunded. You, because it is spent into the economy and it is um, it's given to adults 18 to 59. Yeah. And then on top of that, people who receive the child support grant. Would it be everyone? Just it's, yeah, it's the, children, the children would get it as well yeah. because the, ch the child support grant, I think it's about 480. It's below the food poverty line. Yeah. So that would also be increased for each kid. So at the end of the day, if you're a mother with three children, yeah. you'd get a grant for yourself instead of chowing, and your unemployed mother, instead of chowing the children's money as you, people do. And so you'd get a grant for yourself and 
a grant of 1500 for your three children. Sure. So I costed that, I'm not a populist, it was mm -hmm. 547 mm -hmm. billion rands over three years. Okay. It works out at 2.5% of GDP over three years. If you discovered that to eliminate black tax, it would only take 2.5% of the, your family's income to eliminate black tax, most South Africans would do that without batting an eyelid. Mm -hmm. And it would stimulate the economy. And we would grow at about, I think it's 4.5 to 4.6%, yeah. depending on the multiplier. It'd be huge consumption. It's a huge consumption spend, yeah. And then, yes. The uh, yeah, and then it would create between 1.6 and 2.1 million additional jobs than what was forecast by Treasury of 600,000 jobs. Mm -hmm. So that is what would happen with the basic income grant. Okay. The second one is I've been working with Youth Capital yeah. um, on. The, I believe that, you know, Martin Luther King said there must be guaranteed income. And he also said it must be, you know, if my parents had taught me about Martin Luther King, he was the first um, democratic socialist before there was a democratic socialist like Bernie. Mm -hmm. um, he says there must be guaranteed income and guaranteed work, you know. That's what I believe in. So the second mm -hmm. one, so the job guarantee and the basic income are seen as competing ideas. Sure. I merged them into one. So the work I've done with Youth Capital literally the last week is that currently we have the Presidential Employment Stimulus, we have the Community Works Program, we have the Expanded Public Works Program. Sure. These offer 1.8 million work opportunities. Mm -hmm. There's the National Youth Development Agency. Yeah, that's very small. They've got the, the, the NYDA is part of um, the yeah, it's part of that. Sure. that universe. Sure. So they create about 1.8 million work opportunities and about 900,000 full-time equivalent jobs. So I say, let's amalgamate all of them mm. into an institution with civil society oversight. Sure. You know, a quasi-public institution right. that will develop the capacity to create about 5 million full-time full -time jobs within five years. Because we're currently doing 900,000. And so, so it would create the residual amount of jobs that are not created through GDP growth sure. and through industrial policy, which I'll talk about now. So, um, th th so that's, num that's number two. Number mm -hmm. three, in terms of employment, there's three levers to address the unemployment crisis. So there's a GDP growth, then there's a relationship between GDP growth and employment. I worked out over the past 20 years, for every one percentage point of GDP growth, employment grows by 0.9 percentage points. You know, that was during the fast period of growth and during the recent pre-COVID period. Okay. So, yeah, so, so, you can, so what you can do, the first one is to grow the economy mm -hmm. and it will create jobs. So the second lever is um, to, to change, the com to increase the employment multiplier through industrial policies. And whatever you can't do through that, it is um, public employment programs. So the third thing is industrial policies, obviously, mm -hmm. to change the nature of our apartheid economy. Sure. And so I have a lot of proposals around that we're running out of time. Mm. But the other thing I believe in is universal public services because GDP growth by itself does not translate into economic development as we all know. Mm. So all these proposals that I'm talking about are to make sure that the GDP growth benefits everyone. Sure. So free education, I'm in at Wits University in your marvelous studio. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in free tertiary and I'm not a populist, I've done the numbers. Mm -hmm. so, so, so now NSFAS gives its 2020 latest statistics. Yeah. It provides support to 57% of undergrad students. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. The National Research Foundation provides support to um, 4% of postgraduate students. Mm. So I'm saying, boom. You're talking about what, like 500,000 or 600? No, it's a small number. I think it's 15,000. It's like really small. No, I mean together, combined. So NISFAS plus. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so but basically, it's about 40-something billion, 50 billion, just for argument's sake. Yeah, it's about 50 billion rands. So I'm saying, so the we provide... students. So there are a million students. No, so there's one point... Um, I'm also talking TVET. So, so it's about 1.8 sure. million uh, higher education, one point two. it's about 1.2 million higher edu public higher education, sure. and about 700, 600,000 TVET. And mm. the TVET enrollment has been declining mm. in recent years. Mm. I think TVET has got a stigma. It is providing a second-class education to South Africans. It's actually a shame, and it has to be re reconfigured. But as it were, we provide support to only half of those people in that system, in that extent. So now, right. if you double it, 50 billion rands, that's free education for all of us. Yeah, tertiary education. And then 71% of basic education schools are no fee. So the government would have to compensate the people who lose the income you know, that they're collecting, collecting, which isn't that much anyway, and then they would have to compensate those schools. Now, in terms of basic education, I believe that we must equalize this two education system. I met with Mary Mudkaff. She says I mustn't call it two education. Mm. She says there's many education systems, but I think it's, I think South Africans know what I'm talking about when I say two education systems. So if we equalize them, um, learner and educator ratios at about, um, the level of the OECD countries and um, private schools, we will have to double the size of the, you know, basic education system. And the same with the, the white. So we must take profit out of education. The one thing that really roused me is, you know, when we introduce, you know, profit and utilitarian, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Education for me is a human right. Yeah, sure. yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's in its own right. And I'm in a university here, the people are watching. You're not going to university to get a job, sorry. You know, that's not the primary objective. It's to educate yourself. That's, that's number two. And then obviously we need national health insurance system, national health, um, and I've also costed that as to how to do it. And also ESCOM public energy. And I really believe that um, we must take profit out of energy at ESCOM. And the IPPs, I do not believe in them. I think ESCOM, it's a crisis right now, you know, and Andre Dureter, you know, this as before I came here, I'm doing research. Um, mm. Andre Dureter left on the, you know, in December on my birthday, and he's been away for five months. Sizwe, the people who are on the short list, it makes you want to weep, you know? Yeah. yeah. It mm. is, yeah, and the person who's likely to get the job, um, what I've been hearing, it comes to deployment, is that you deploy people for the wrong reasons. You want someone who's going to listen to you. Can we talk about ESCOM? Because yeah, yeah. one of the interesting questions just on the economy and... Mm. and it's the, the most important issue right now. You know, it's, it's like an unprecedented load shedding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, is the, the way that the ESCOM debt has been taken over yeah. taken over by the state. Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on how we could rescue ESCOM and 
maintain it as a public asset without okay, yes, yes. purely privatizing the system yeah, with yeah, all yeah. its, its So now, yeah, by the way, for years, I've been calling for the first time I wrote about this debt must disappear was four years ago. I've seen that. Five, yeah, five that. years ago. Yeah. I've also said the municipal debt must disappear, disappear because it's intra-government debt, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the debt relief of 254, these conditions on privatization, which are absurd, you know, and um, I won't even go into them. But my argument is that there are three things we need to do with ESCOM on the financing side. Sure. They must take over the entire debt. 160 billion rand is foreign debt. And then our foreign exchange reserves can sort that out. And then the rest is local debt. So we must have two ESCOMs. ESCOM 1 um, will be the legacy assets, the yeah. coal assets, you know. And then ESCOM 2 must be um, new capacity. You know, one of the most depressing things I saw is that um, if you look at 1998, or was it 2000 annual report, mm. and you look now, the demand is almost the same. It's just like, it's like shocking, you know, mm. I mean, like, so we haven't, so... Um, we haven't added yeah, 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 yeah. Of new capacity. Yeah, yeah, so we need to add new capacity. So, so I'm, I'm just saying, that, no, the demand side, you know. Sure, so sure. It, it shows that how our economy hasn't been performing, you know. So now, so now there's a relationship between GDP growth and new capacity. Mm. I'm not actually sure, I, when I listen to people, they give me different things. But mm. the point is, a normal country, and if you look at... Um, the ESCOM projections on the trust transition and all of that is that um, we require about 2.5% of GDP. That's about 60, about 100, hang on, 60, 120, 150 billion rands a year investment in new capacity. So a normal country invests in capacity every year. There is no debate about it. Yeah. We must invest in capacity. It doesn't even go to parliament. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So this is what we should have been doing for the past 20 years. We should, it's not something ordinary South Africans should not have to know what an energy availability factor is. And, and this 100%, the situation now is that 100% of new capacity will be provided by the IPPs. And you know what happens with the IPPs. There's endless blackmails and threats not to invest, and it is too risky for our national security. So I'm saying, let's create ESCOM 2, something that we can all be proud of, and ESCOM 2 will invest in new capacity. But the quickest way to end this load shedding is to fix the current plants. And that is what I'm saying. There shouldn't be a budget constraint for ESCOM. We should, and I've argued that before it happened about the diesel, whatever it takes, because the cost of this disaster is much more than the cost of fixing ESCOM. Yeah. There is something called the cost of unserved energy. It's about 87.75 um, kilowatt hours. And if you look at the calculations, which I've looked at from the CSIR, hmm. the cost of this thing until last year was 2.5 trillion. Hmm. Um, and it was about 1 trillion last year, the cost to the economy. Now, until May 10th, we had shared more energy than the whole of last year, which was the worst. Hmm. And it's incredible when you think about it. So the combined cost now is about 2.5 trillion. And if you continue at this rate, it's 3.5 trillion. So the cost of fixing ESCOM is far mm. less than the cost of um, this disaster that we're living through. And this is one thing that I have to say, Cesar. Infrastructure has got multipliers of about two, two times. And one thing I forgot to say, the biggest reason for the reduction of growth since 2015 was a collapse of public sector investment. 
I talk about, they talk about a public sector investment strike. It is huge. And public corporations is about 50% has collapsed since then, you know. And I think the one for, for um, general government is about in the 20s. I can't remember the exact number. Mm. But there's been a huge um, decline in public sector investment. Now, public sector investment creates jobs. Um, let's re let's I, I just can't understand yeah. why there should be a budget constraint for public sector investment. And then finally, people say, you know, when I was, you know, I, when I try to explain things, I try not to sound, um, you know, like an EFF person, you know. <laughs> so I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was talking about state ownership of mines, one CEO said to me, you know, Duma, I believe, I agree with you when you're saying it. Yeah. But not when Julius Ovavi is saying so, you know. Huh. So, yeah, so, so I'm just saying, yeah, so but infrastructure investment, um, it creates the money to pay for itself. Yeah, and the absolutely. Chinese understand that and the Asians understand it. Absolutely. It's stupid to have a budget constraint. And so what people now say is that, no, we agree with everything you say. And they were saying it when I was talking about mining. Mm. I remember, and they said, but not this government, mm. you know. Mm. So I think we have to innovate in terms of institutions. And uh, we have to create something which I haven't worked out how it's going to work. I call it a quasi-public institution mm. where the, I think the BBC operates along something similar, although it's been hijacked by the Tories <laughs> recently, but um, it was meant to operate in this. So it has civil society oversight mm. over the spending. And um, what really, you know, like we shouldn't discover five years after the event that something wrong happened. So there should be continuous civil mm. society spending, you know, and you know, I'm. A friend of mine is a deputy mayor in Bavecha and in Kusirichak. He's very conservative, you know. Yeah. Mm. I don't know what happened to him. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so I, I was pushing this idea to him. I said, now, your business does not benefit from this austerity, you know. Mm. So why don't we have something that is professionally run, like the Solidarity Fund, you know, that we had during COVID. Sure. And we have different Solidarity Funds throughout the economies like mm, in, mm. in Eastern Cape, mm. you could have, so people would bid for projects that they think could create jobs and they would be evaluated according to objective criteria. It's something that we would collectively own. It would exist as a parallel mechanism to the state and um, while we sort out the capacity issues in the state, you know, uh, but it, we, we have to innovate in terms of the institutions mm. that we set up to be able, and we, we're not going to get it right with this one, but we can't. Um, we continue. can't just sit on our hands. We can't just sit on our hands. There's nothing so that let's can just, be done I mean, now. I mean, I had problems with the Solidarity Fund, but mm. I'm saying something like the Solidarity Fund. Well, the predictions of corruption there didn't really materialize. materialize yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't, we don't know. But yeah. in the public, it was professionally run by sure. Gloria Sirobe, and there was a team of professional managers. But yeah. I'm not sure there was as much civil society yeah. oversight. Sure. Sure. and participation yeah. in the projects that were selected. I don't know. Can I ask you, mm. so I wanted to come to, as we round off this question of the monetary side, you've spoken about how mm. that could interface with raising funds, but you've also been very vocal on the decision to raise the repo rate. It seems like the Reserve Bank only has one tool and they're just bashing us over the heads with that tool of you know increasing interest rates because of inflation can you tell us why you think that's not the only way to get around this inflation crisis that for sure or this inflation problem that certainly has increased but it seems like 
ordinary people are being punished by the Reserve Bank's decisions every time inflation goes up when they're not necessarily responsible for that inflation. Okay, yeah, it's been my campaign this week. I, I've um, seen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now, first of all, people need to understand that there's two sides of inflation. There's what we call supply-side shocks, which is things like the, the production side of the economy, like interest rate and, and exchange rate, things that the Reserve Bank has no control over. And then there's demand, which is the where the Reserve Bank increases interest rates to reduce demand in the economy. Sure. Sure. So what we're seeing now is a, since COVID is overlapping supply-side shocks to the economy. Sure. And the difference this time, where now they're comparing to the 70s, is that we're having all these supply-side shocks at the same time, one after the other. Sure. So that's the only difference. But supply-side shocks eventually work themselves out of the system through what we call base effects. Now, let me just explain to South Africans who are watching your wonderful show, <laughs> is that um, they can increase the interest rates to 20%. That will not reduce the price of bread and cereals, which increased by 20% in March. So what do we have to do? Um, so theoretically, you can increase the interest rates to a level of, let's say, 40%, 50%, where nobody can afford to buy bread and cereals. Yeah. Um, but the, That's one way to decrease. Well, yeah, 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 well, yeah. But the point is, um, Galbraith said using interest rates to solve supply-side shocks is the equivalent to roasting the house to, I mean, sorry, burning the house to roast the pig. You know, it's an extreme measure that makes no sense whatsoever in any universe. The second one I've just told you, it's about interest rates are to reduce demand in the economy. Guess what? Um, ESCOM has done the most effective job <laughs> of decimating demand. Sure. Until now, it's 2.5 trillion rands, yeah. as I said, to the economy, and it's projecting to 3.5 trillion rand. So what is the point of reducing demand when GDP is going to decline this year? And what, lo what logic is there to increasing interest rates? Mm -hmm. I say it's the equivalent of a boxer um, kicking an opponent who's already on the floor. Mm -hmm. The third one that people say, no, Duma, it's about, um, it's about um, protecting our currency. But if you look at when they started in November, someone, someone actually sent this to me. Since November 2001, when they started, I mean, 2021, when they started the rate hikes, mm -hmm. to now, the currency has depreciated. And secondly, um, last year, as I said, we've had the hugest, huge outflow of capital from South Africa. Everyone is running exit door, the foreign investors. Mm. And this year, so it was, I think it's 200 billion this year, 300 billion last year. So this is not, so it is a, it is a futile exercise to, to target a currency, mm. especially using a tool that is ineffective. So the currency, the things that impact on the currency are far more, you know, diverse than just, and most of them have got nothing to do with South African domestic policy. It's about global issues relating to the dollar. The dollar sets the tone for currency movements anywhere in the world. So when I want to know what the RAND is doing, I start looking at the dollar and euro first. And if that doesn't explain it, then it's a domestic issue. That's a rule of thumb. So all three elements, the Reserve Bank, so what countries have done, there was the COVID response, then there is the Ukraine war response. Now, I've been following what countries have done. Mm. They've used fiscal policy measures and industrial policy measures. So what Isabella, um, Isabella Weber, you know, amazing new economist, uh, she's been talking about is the need for price controls. 
to so what their measures mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. to take you know companies are this price gouging you know amongst yeah, the capitalists absolutely. you know and, and and just on that I yeah. mean it's it's really important for people to understand that to just blame consumers and average people for inflation when companies are ultimately sometimes taking decisions to increase their prices even beyond yeah it's, it's like punishing detect. the wrong kids in the school yeah you know the yeah. you know you know like my son you know he hates being blamed for something he didn't do sure. you know like kids sure. you know but now what what they're doing now yeah. is punishing the people with bonds and people you know mm. the poor people mm. it, it's just it just makes no sense yeah. whatsoever you know yeah so, companies can increase their prices yes, and do whatever yes. so, they so want what, what companies have done like in the so let's take Europe. They have gas prices. They're exposed to gas prices, which even higher than yeah. oil prices. So many of them introduced price subsidies. They produced price caps for price controls. Mm -hmm. We introduced what we called, and um, we suspended the fuel levy. And we could have suspended it for a year, you know. We, and they provided assistance mm -hmm. to families to pay these bills. So that is what they did. They also did industrial policy measures. In the US, they've got the Inflation Reduction Act, which created incentives, huge incentives, for them for alternative energy that doesn't depend on, so that does reduce the dependence on oil. So I'm just saying that, so a mixture of fiscal and targeted policies. So if the food inflation, the wheat, is prices are going, we import our wheat. If the food inflation for bread and cereals, then you target that. You don't make everyone else suffer for that particular increase. You know, it's like a scorched earth policy where you must... <laughs> scorched wallet policy. Yeah, yeah, scorched wallet policy. I like that. <laughs> where you just inflict misery on everybody, yeah. the people who didn't cause this problem yeah. in the first place. So, yes, that's, that's what I have a problem with. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Look, we've come to the end of our, mm. our time. Just to thank you so much, I, I know there's still some other questions we need to discuss, mm -hmm. and maybe in part two, mm. um, which I know the audience will be will mm. be demanding, we'll do that. But thank you so much for sharing your insights on the economy, giving us an alternative perspective of what we could be doing, and making us realize that the decisions that have been taken in the last three decades are not acts of God or natural. Yes. They were political decisions, and mm. we can go in different directions and we should have the bravery to do that. So thank you for all your work over the years and for joining us on SNWX. Thank you so much, Sizwe. Yeah. The Sizwe Mbofu Welsh Experience Podcast. Aye, aye, aye.